Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. I spoke again yesterday with Alana Diane, one of Israel's most celebrated broadcast journalists whose investigative reports over decades have stirred strong reaction within Israel and the Middle East. Ilana's been on the Axe Files before when she was a fellow at the Institute of Politics. But the Alana Diane I spoke with yesterday was a different voice than the one I'd heard before. Not the voice of a dispassionate journalist, but a searing voice laced with grief, outrage, and determination, reflective of her country's mood after the horrific Hamas massacre of October 7th. Here's that conversation. Ilana, it's so good to see you. I know this is such a difficult time for Israel and for a journalist in Israel and for a mother in Israel, all those things. Tell me, what ha- when were you alerted to the Hamas attack? When did you first learn of it? And when did you realize uh, how serious it was? You know, we are trying to reconstruct this terrible Saturday morning, each and every one of us. And I'm doing it as a journalist, and we are doing it as a nation and as individuals. And, you know, in terms of schedule, it's relatively easy. 6.30, sirens go off all over Israel, from the north to the south. But it sounds like a rocket attack. And even people in the south, on the Gaza border, those who ended up spending 24, 33 hours in the shelters, terrified to death because terrorists were, you know, flooding their kibbutzim and their moshavim and their communities. Even them thought, even they thought that, you know, it's going to end in a couple of minutes. We go into the shelter. There's a, you know, calming alarm that everything is over. Iron Dome is protecting us. The IDF is protecting us. Everything is going to be fine. I, w- I woke up because my daughter texted me from New York. She's there because her husband is starting the master's degree in law in Columbia University. By now, he's here in the reserve, serving in the military. They're back here. She's bearing her first son and, and they're both, and they're both here. And, um, and so it took us, David, not long, I guess perhaps an hour for the first videos to come out from a small town in the south, Sderot, who is very close to the Gaza border. And you could see the vans, the vans of Hamas terrorists driving through the streets of Sderot as if you could see them in New York City or in Chicago or in LA or in Nashville, Tennessee, firing, shooting all over the place. And then the nightmare started. Then the nightmare started. And you went into journalist mode, I assume, right away. Yeah, although, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in news reporting. We are doing investigative news. Right. And so I was glued. I was glued to the news reporting for 
I guess, the whole first day. And then we started to work and going down to the south and starting to understand what happens. And I got to tell you, David, both us, like almost every Israeli, we spent the first day asking ourselves, can we find words? Can we find words to describe the fact that terrorist Hamas stormed into houses in a kibbutz? I was there by now. I was there in Be'eri and Kvaraza and Re'im. I was there where a party, a music festival was interrupted by hundreds of ter- terrorists shooting all over the place, young people celebrating music and life and peace and freedom. And we try to find words for the stories of a young lady who is trying to hide and she finds herself in front of a burial of a terrorist and he just shoots her. And another young Israeli man who is talking to his father, his father, David, is the commander of our SWAT team, of the elite unit of the Israeli police. And his father is already trying to tackle the terrorists. And his son is calling him and he says, Dad, they're shooting me. And then his father hears Arabic voices and he understands that his son was killed. And his father, you know, keeps fighting for days until the funeral stops. And you hear the story of a young filmmaker. He was best friend with a young person that I know. And you hear that he distracted the terrorists for a second in his kibbutz so that his young wife and their baby will be able to run away. She spends the next 24 hours or 30 hours running from one corner of the kibbutz to the other, hiding in a store, in a, in a, in a storage place. And another elderly kibbutz member tells us how she was hiding inside a linen box. And she was elated that she wore a black pajamas that night because that way they didn't recognize her. And another family who are relatives of our political correspondent in the radio station for which I broadcast. And they, they were trying to hold the door so that the terrorists will, will not be able to enter the shelter. The terrorists were dropping grenades and firing all over the place and trying to storm into the shelter. The father was holding the door, but then they started fire. Hamas was starting a fire in the apartment. So the door became hot as hell and the father had to make a decision. So the whole family jumps through the window. And they hide behind the bush, but then the terrorist detects them and executes the two parents and the elder kid and the younger ones, the two younger ones, just hid under the bodies of their family members. And that's how they were saved. So we are, David, for the last two and a half weeks, we are, I feel like I'm drowning in an ocean of pain and grief and loss. And sorrow like no time before, never before. Let me ask you, uh, you mentioned your, your daughter and who's expecting and mazel tov on that. Thank you. And, and your son-in-law in the reserves. Uh, you have three children. Uh, uh, what are your other children? Where are your other children? My youngest is a musician. He's a trumpet player. And he um, is studying in a music academy in Berlin, of all places, David, it's the Barenboim Said Academy, launched by Daniel Barenboim, a peace-loving Israeli, extreme left-wing, and Edward Said, the famous Palestinian intellectual. Gonen is studying there with 
young musicians from Gaza, from Ramallah, from Tehran, from Beirut, from Turkey, from all over the Arab world. And he told me he was trying to make sense of what's happening, of the fact that these guys are friends, good friends of his, but some of them are celebrating what Hamas was doing. And then when they had a concert the day before yesterday, he approached a friend of him, a friend of his, a Palestinian guy from Ramallah, and he said, perhaps we approach the maestro and we ask him to start with a minute of silence. And, and that's what they decided to do. But I'm trying to tell Gonen, and I'm trying to tell you, David, this is no case in which I can look at both sides of the equation. There's no symmetry here, David. Israel was attacked by a group of bloodthirsty terrorists. It was an unprovoked attack. And we got into this terrible catastrophe exactly because we wanted this border to be peaceful and silent, because we believed that it is possible to contain, to entertain, to live with, to manage, to somehow come to terms, to somehow, uh, uh, you know, keep Hamas at bay. If only they get more work permits, if only they get more money, if only they get more well-being, if only they get to, you know, manage their lives. That's what we thought, all of us, our prime minister and the previous prime ministers, our brass and previous brass, for years. We got caught in this conception, which turned out, out to be a misconception, like somebody sedated us, like somebody, you know, like somebody blinded us much before they blinded our cameras and our watch points and our soldiers. We were blind. Well, I want to talk ab about that because obviously, as was predictable, the, the world is now reacting to Israeli tactics in Gaza. The story of October 7th is still being told, but it's sort of in the rearview mirror for many, and it's rekindled the debate about the occupation and the treatment of the Palestinians. I, I want to get all that to all of that, but tell me what Israel was like on the 6th of October and mm -hmm. what it was like on the 8th of October, and where, where do you think you go from here? Well, there are two dimensions to this question and to the answer. The first is the practical one, and we'll talk about it, I guess, later. Is Israel about to launch an offensive attack on the ground? Yes. Is it delayed? Yes. Is it delayed? Partly because the Americans are involved more than ever, watching us from our enemies, but also watching us from ourselves. Yes. Is Biden and Blinken, are they much more involved in getting into the intricacies of the managing of this war? Yes. Is there a window of opportunity to rescue the hostages, more than 220 hostages that we have in Gaza? Yes, and we'll talk about it. But where does Israel go from here? The bigger question, the deeper question, I think is, first of all, reckoning with the fact that Israel is not the same place. You know why? Because for the first time, I think ever since 1945, we felt like Jewish tragedy is hitting us yet another time. And that's after you and I, as Jewish people, were saying and reciting, never again, never again. And all of a sudden, it happens again. We are the victims. We are helpless. The mother with a 17-year-old daughter were trying to hold the door, not letting the terrorists come in. We're helpless. The other 
uh, a young woman who was alone in her house, kidnapped by the terrorists, 85-year-old woman. She was helpless when they took her on a motorcycle to Gaza. She was helpless. The two young kibbutz members that I saw with my own eyes in a terrible video released this week, coming back to the kibbutz, being shot at at their car, coming out of the car and executed point blank. They were helpless. David, we were never helpless ever since this country was founded. So Israel of October 6th was the post-Holocaust Israel. Israel of October 8th, all of a sudden, was vibrating with these sounds of Jewish tragedy, which we thought that will never hit us again. So that's, I guess, the deeper sense. But there's one difference. There's one difference. We are not in the ghetto anymore. And the fact that Israel is a sovereign, independent, powerful, thriving state, on the one hand, it's the bad news because it should never happen to us, right? But the good news is that um, Israeli society and civic forces and the Israeli military is getting back on its feet. And, and you can see, you can see stuff that I've never seen in Israel for many, many years. You can see society coming together. So, so there's something to the fact that Israelis are much more united on October 8th and October 18th and October 28th than in October 6th. Uh, and, and, and with much more solidarity. And although something was broken on October 7th, I think as a nation, we are not broken. We're coming together. And, we, and, and, and there's a, there's a sense here that this war cannot end until something very deep changes. I don't know if Hamas will be, you know, over and done with. Will it be destroyed? Will it be? done, you know, until the last bullet, the last rocket, the last fighter, I don't know. But something will have to change. This monster on the other side of the fence cannot exist there anymore. What does accomplishing that mean, A, for the hostages that are there? You know, I think everyone is sort of puzzling about how you accomplish the goal of neutralizing Hamas without, A, imperiling the hostages. And, which is obviously why Hamas took the hostages, and B, without a massive death on of Palestinians, that will have an impact, and already is having an impact on you know global opinion on your ability to make progress in the region. You know there were negotiations going on with the Saudis. There were I, I just saw a segment uh, of an interview with the Jordanian Queen that was very harsh. So. Tell me how one accomplishes that and stops rockets from raining. It's not only rockets. It's not only rockets. You see, David, we were reckoning with rockets because of Iron yeah. Dome, which, I mean, to think about it, perhaps Iron Dome was the biggest obstacle because if we didn't False have, sense of security. Exactly. The false sense of mm -hmm. security and the sense that we got to do something was somehow numb because of Iron Dome. But that's, yeah, it's, it's like we had something which was too successful. But the, to the larger question. Yeah. yeah, to the larger question, I think we have two clocks ticking here, opposite to one another. One has to do with Israeli deterrence. There's a sense within the military, within the brass, within the security establishment, 
that if Israel doesn't act now with a ground offensive, with boots on the ground, with an aggressive march into Gaza to take hold of Hamas strongholds, to destroy Hamas infrastructure, to kill Hamas leaders, both political and military leaders, to neutralize the ability of this operation to threaten Israeli citizens and communities and national security. If we don't do it now, then our deterrence will be done and over with. And you know, when you are a villa in the jungle, when you live in a violent neighborhood such as ours, you cannot let weakness be seen and you cannot be the weak guy on the block. That's what the military would tell you. I was speaking to a senior military officer the other day. He took part in the fights in the kibbutzim. He will take part in the war when it starts. And he told me the Israeli leadership will not survive one, even one day if we don't come back from this war, assuring the Israeli public there is no Hamas across the border. Can we do it? That's another question. But the other clock ticking is the clock of the hostages, because Hamas will be, and is signaling even today through Qatar, that Hamas will be willing to engage in negotiations and to cut a deal, at least with regard to civilians, elderly women and men, babies and women, if only Israel delays the ground offensive. They will but, but this window of opportunity is short, right? And so the question is, will the government decide to delay the ground offensive for the sake of the hostages? It seems like it will. For how long? We don't know. It's very obvious that the Americans are, you know, with both hands on the wheel and they want a deal stricken, being stricken partly because you have Tens we of, have cast hostages there yeah, as well. Of, of, of American citizens, but also because, as I said, America is having our back, but it's back as well. And and the other point is, and you can see it in columns and texts and broadcasts in Israel during the past, say, four days, public opinion here is changing, David, because the shock and the aftershock of the attack itself resulted in a very high support for the government. But now, you can see more and more columnists and pundits and, and, and reporters writing stuff like one of the most senior ones. He says, it's possible, it's even mandatory to stop the ground offensive and do everything, everything we can do for the sake of the hostages. And another one said this morning in the radio, there's no rush now. There's no rush. Our towns were already set on fire. Now Gaza will wait. First, we go to the bottom line and we rescue the hostages. And bear in mind, David, this is part of the Israeli ethos. You traded a thousand prisoners a few years ago for one soldier. For one soldier, for Gilad Shalit. Bibi Netanyahu signed this deal. And also, you know, Israel would send airplanes to rescue a traveler, a tourist who Mm -hmm. broke his leg in Nepal or Kathmandu or someone who was you know, kidnapped in the jungles of Colombia or someone who is stuck in a in a in an earthquake in Uzbekistan. It's part of Jewish ethos, it's part of the Israeli ethos. Government will do everything. We leave no war behind, we leave no wounded behind, we leave no uh, MIAs behind, we leave no prisoners of war behind. So that's part of our ethos. It's part of the fact that 
In Israel, you don't have six degrees of separation, not even two degrees of separation. Everybody knows everybody. You know how many people know people who were kidnapped? You know how many people know people who were murdered? You know how many yeah. people are going to funerals now and to shivas? It's touching all of us, and that will have to be part of the decision-making. I should have asked you, I mean, you've lost one and a half percent of your population in this attack. Did you lose people you knew, people you were close to? I can tell you that um, I have a second cousin on my mother's side who grew up in a kibbutz, and then she started a family in a kibbutz further south near, near Oz, which is really next to the border. Her daughter is missing, probably kidnapped to Gaza. She's desperate. And I asked her, is she tough enough? And she said, you know, she's tough, but she needs her medicine because she grew up in a kibbutz who is constantly showered by rockets. She needs her medicine. And I don't know how she's doing. And I got to tell you, David, I was in the South the other day and I was walking through the path, the beautiful path of Kibbutz Kfar Aza. It's one of the kibbutzim which was most badly hurt by this attack. Seventy of its members are either killed or missing. Seven more are known to be kidnapped. You should see the table of funerals. You should see the names. I'm walking the kibbutz, you know, houses destroyed, burned to the ground. You can see the photos, you know, these photos every Jewish family has of the family that survived the Holocaust, of those who didn't yes. survive. And you can see this is the only thing left, the photos on the ground. You can see books by my favorite poet on the ground, half of them burned. And uh, yes, so, so it, there's a feeling that you know already, even the people that you didn't know, because we know their names. And now I walk through the, you know, the gardens of the kibbutz and I see this name. And I know that this is a mother who was kidnapped to Gaza with her two red-haired kids. One is three years old and one is nine months old. I can see the other house of a news photographer who was murdered. His wife was murdered. His three-year-old kid was kidnapped alone to Gaza. The other two kids were hiding in the closet and were rescued. Another family that the paratroopers stormed into their house at the end of the disturbance Saturday. And I heard the commanders say that he found the parents handcuffed and shot to death and two baby twins in the crib, silent, alive, but silent. So you feel like you know everybody and you know many of them. There's a young producer from our radio station. She was 22 years old. She worked with me up until a year ago and they were looking for her for days. They didn't find her. She is the sister of the producer of the party, of this huge music festival. And eventually they found her body. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Are you worried that um, the aggressive action that you say Israel must take in Gaza will lead to a broader conflict? You saw the leaders, uh, some leaders of Hamas, uh, meeting with leaders of Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, I guess yesterday, and we've seen rockets flying in from Yemen. We've seen you know there were reports of uh, activity uh, out of Syria. How likely do you think such a scenario is, and how much can how, you have three hundred and fifty thousand troops on the southern border? How much can Israel withstand? The easy answer is that I don't know that. The bad news is that, is that I think nobody knows, not even the other side. I mean, the conventional wisdom is that Iran doesn't want to sacrifice Hezbollah for the sake of Hamas. So that's the best news that we can think of. Hezbollah is there in Lebanon as a proxy of Iran, not as a tool to protect Hamas. In that case, there is no incentive for Nasrallah to launch an offensive against Israel. The leader of Hezbollah. The leader of Hezbollah. Problem is that you can never know. There can be a spark that escalates everything. It can happen in a hospital in Gaza, which we didn't shoot. We didn't attack. But something can happen. Accidents can happen. Unexpected stuff happens in wars. It can happen in Lebanon or in Gaza or in the West Bank, which can also be lit on fire from some reason, which, you know, it's also, there's no, it's not a very calm neighborhood either. So, so you, you cannot know. Israel has a priority now, which is the Gaza border. Israel has a priority now, which is Hamas. Israel is trying to keep the northern border quiet, as quiet as possible. It is, no, it is not quiet. There are attacks and anti-tank missiles from there every day. And the IDF is operating there every day. And the IDF operated in Aleppo just this tonight. And I got to tell you, it feels like you know, the last time that I remember an existential threat was in the 73, the Yom Kippur War. And I remember asking, him, asking my father, I was, I was a primary school student, is it possible that the Syrians will get to Haifa or to, or to Tiberias? And he said, don't worry, it's going to be okay. It was okay eventually. And this time it feels like all of a sudden, unexpected, you know, this, this country of ours, in which people eat sushi and, and 
you know, they, they get deliveries from Amazon and they have high tech firms and they have multi-billion dollar exits and they fly for skiing in Europe and they have apartments in New York and we, we are living the good life. It's a Western country. And all of a sudden we are back in the existential mode and uh, it's, it's both weird and frightening. But again, on the other hand, if you, you know, if you, if you come back to the, you know, basic facts, conventional wisdom is that um, Hezbollah will not launch an offensive. Question is, what can Israel do in the South? And can it truly change reality over there? And in what price? You mentioned 1973, and it, it obviously has come up quite a bit because that was the last time that Israel was surprised and had this existential threat that you describe after the government was turned out and held accountable for that. You, you, your distant relative, uh, Moshe Dayan, was, uh, was the defense minister at the time, a gallant war hero of the Six-Day War. And, but a tragic hero of the 73 war. Yeah. So, first of all, reflect on that. You must have, that must have crossed your mind when all of this uh, happened. But what does it foreshadow for the government? And how much did the political controversies that uh, Netanyahu has created with his, you know, his desire to change the justice system in uh, Israel, perhaps to his own advantage, uh, how much has that contributed to this moment of blindness that you describe? I'll tell you, David, even the fiercest opponents of Netanyahu cannot negate the fact that this blindness and fiasco is, to a large extent, a military fiasco. The intelligence was blinded. The military was unprepared. It's unthinkable that something like that will be prepared and advanced and launched by Hamas without us knowing anything, anything. So. The military has responsibility to bear, and the chief of staff was the first one to admit, I am responsible. We didn't deliver the goods. So did the head of the Shin Bet of the security service, and so did the head of the military intelligence. The only one who didn't say the word until now is Bibi Netanyahu. He didn't say I'm responsible, although it happened on his watch. Although the policy containing Hamas, entertaining Hamas, holding Hamas at bay, Partly to make sure that the Palestinian Authority is weaker yes. is Netanyahu's policy. To make sure that the Palestinian Authority doesn't get the, 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 stand, the statue that it might want to get, this is Netanyahu's policy. Yeah, we should point out that it's his policy because he was opposed to the concept of a Palestinian state. Exactly. And so long as the Palestinian Authority was weak and there was no credible partner on the other side, exactly. uh, he could hold that at bay. Exactly. I, I, I will come back to this because I want but, but, but to just, talk but about it. Yeah, but, but just yeah. to, to finish the, the answer, yes. but, yeah. and, and so Netanyahu never admitted, never uttered the word, I am responsible, at least because it happened on his watch. But there's another point. I was talking to a very senior official in the security community in Israel, and he told me, you know what? When they were, Netanyahu and his political partners were advancing the judicial overhaul, and we, the security guys, the security establishment, we were telling them, this is hurting 
Israel's national security. This is hurting unity, solidarity, and capability of Israeli security forces, the Air Force, the intelligence, the elite units in which reservists were manifesting their protest against, against the judicial overhaul. And tells me this guy, he says, even if Netanyahu blames the protest and not the judicial overhaul itself, even if he, if he thinks that the enemy perceived us as weak or weaker than, the, than we used to be, not because of the judicial reform, but because of the protest against the judicial over, overhaul, it was the government's responsibility to hit the brake, to stop it, and to understand that Israel doesn't have the luxury of deteriorating into such a rift when tensions ran high and the Israeli social fabric was, you know, was, was, was crumb- falling apart. And every dimension of our life was, was damaged, economic, social, national security, military, everything. And, and so if something was broken on October 7th, it sits on prior things that were broken. Our politics was broken during the last year. A social fabric was broken during the last year. In a way, our national security started to break during the last year. And then October 7th happened. What happens now? You say the countries come together as you would expect uh, around this, this shared nightmare and repelling the threat. But what does it portend for politics? I mean, the day before... I guess that Saturday there might have been people out on the streets protesting the government. No, no, nobody protested. Nobody no, protested. I understand. No, no, I understand. I understand. But had that not happened, ha- had October 7th not happened, you would oh, have yes. seen continued protests. Right. What happens now? I know they've suspended their push for this, what they call judicial reform. But at the end of the day, is this, you, you have covered Netanyahu as intensively as any journalist in Israel. He has been very clear about his views of you, of you and your coverage of him. So no one would mistake you for an apologist for Bibi Netanyahu. What happens now to him? Is this the end of the story for him? Again, that's conventional wisdom that no leader can survive such a catastrophe. Well, partly because of 73. Yes, but Netanyahu is not Golda Meir. Israel of 2023 is not Israel of 1973. Netanyahu's grasp over his base is like nothing you can imagine. And if he will go, if he goes, he will not go quietly. I mean, he will give a fight. That's my feeling. But you have to bring into account that pain and grief will very quickly translate into rage, a huge and high wave of public rage. And I'm not sure that Likud, let alone Netanyahu, that Likud party will be able to survive that wave of rage. And they start to talk about senior ministers within Likud who understand that they will have to do something. And they will have to take responsibility and they will have to make sure that Israel is able to go ahead, to open a new era, to start from the beginning. 
Uh, but 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 frankly, David, we, we don't know. We don't know if you know if you if you learn history, no one can survive such a terrible catastrophe, such a terrible loss of life. The fact that over 220 Israelis are held in Gaza, I could never even imagine. I could never even imagine the photos, the the the, the photos of of these people just taken, you know. On motorcycles, on tractors, yeah. on on pickups. The, the, one, the one, the one that uh, I mean, they were all so horrifying and poignant. But I saw a video of a, I think, a twelve-year-old boy who had special needs who was being let off. And I'm a parent of a child with special needs, and I, I, I just found myself thinking, what if it was my daughter? You know, she wouldn't understand. Who's going to be there to explain it? What's happening? We are thinking about this boy, about another young girl that we know with special needs that is there. I'll tell you a story about another young girl with special needs with uh, CP, whose father used to take her to music festivals on the wheelchair, everywhere he could. He would dance with her. He would sing with her. They were both murdered at this party in the South. I'll tell you about another girl with autism. Her name is Noya. Her picture got viral because there was a photo of her dressed like Hermione from Harry Potter. And the one thing that she loved was to stay for a sleepover at her grandma's apartment in the kibbutz. And they were found dead together. The grandmother and the granddaughter. And my 27-year-old son could not stop watching this photo. And he told me about those radical liberals that he's communicating with over social media. And they were talking to him about occupation, about colonization, about Israelis being colonizers. And he was telling them, look at this grandmother. Does she look like a colonizer? Look at Shlomo from another kibbutz who sat alone in the living room, David, for the terrorists to kill him so that he can save his beloved wife and two daughters and grandson who were in the shelter. Because he figured if the terrorists see him alone, they would think there's nobody else in the house. And so he saved them. And my, my son Zohar asked me, is he a colonizer? I interviewed a young woman, a, a, a woman whose husband was killed. He was the head of the county council, of the regional council in the south. She lost him that day, and she lost her son who bled to death in his apartment in the kibbutz. I did a story about them. Her son, Nitzan, was the sensitive of her four sons. And he was texting her and his older brother, I want to be with you guys. I'm alone. I'm, I'm scared to death. They're coming now. I can hear them. They're shooting me. I'm wounded. And they found his body only a week and a half late. His father, Ophir Lipstein, who was the head of the regional county, was trying to build a, an international industri industrial park for engineers from Gaza to make a decent living. Is Ophir Lipstein a colonizer? 
These people were no colonizer. You know, David, I'll tell you the last story about another woman, 70-something year old, years old. She was a, a peace activist. There's an organization, Women for Peace. She spent her day, three days before the massacre, in a joint event of Palestinian and Israeli mothers. And she was murdered on October 7th. She was no colonizer. Somebody has to understand, somebody has to understand that the discussion about occupation, about the rights of the Palestinian people, about the policies of the Israeli government has nothing to do with October 7th. Nothing whatsoever. What, ha what happened in, uh, in October 7th happened when Israel is not in Gaza. There's no occupation in Gaza. There are lots of problems in Gaza. There's a lot to do in Gaza. But it has nothing to do with thousands of terrorists storming into peaceful, peace-loving communities and butchering women and raping women and beheading children. Nothing to do We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Ilana, I, let us stipulate, okay, let us stipulate that Hamas is responsible for the massacre of October 7th, the unthinkable massacre of October 7th, and by extension, responsible for what followed, what, what's followed, which is the mass displacement and death and injury of uh, of pa Palestinians who were, as as you described, those folks uh, as not being colonizers. These folks are not terrorists, and yet uh, mothers are grieving for their children. And, you know, we're all, we all share a common humanity at some level. And, you know, grief is grief. And those scenes, you know, have provoked a a very strong reaction around the world. You can see it here in the U.S. and particularly among the young, you know, and I've seen it on campuses for a long time. There is a sense of solicitude for the Palestinians. So there's a sense of alarm about what's going on. Now there should be a sense of alarm about what we saw on October 7th, for which there's no justification. But that reaction is, you, you know, you can see it in the U.N., you can see it in the statements of leaders around the world and so on, that A, that backlash may be a secondary concern right now, but it has to be a concern. But B, what is the solution to this? And is it, I know that five years after the Yom Kippur Wars came the Camp David Accords, but is there any, can out of this rubble of grief and loss, is there any way forward in which Palestinians and Israelis can live side by side. I cannot even see, I cannot even see next week, David. I'm thinking about my son-in-law. Yes. 
I'm thinking about my best friend, whose son is also now in the military. I'm thinking about those kibbutznikim who are running from one shiva and one funeral to the other. I'm thinking about Vered, the woman that I told you about her before, whom I visited in her shiva the other day. She's grieving her husband and her son in the same house. Her brother is grieving his son. In the same house, their father is grieving his wife. And so the simple answer to your question is that we are so, so far away from thinking about how this, how we come out of this crisis. What kind of people will become after this crisis? Will we lose the last shreds of naivety that some of us still had? The belief in humankind, the belief in the possibility of sharing this piece of land between the sea and the river, the belief in the possibility of neutralizing the will of some of our enemies to be done with us, to be done with the idea of a sovereign state, which is a national home for the Jewish people? Is there a chance that something good will come out of it? I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I know that as a society within Israeli society, we will find the forces. I know that we will find the forces to rise from this crisis. I'll tell you how, how I know it. Because one of the biggest, perhaps the biggest protest organization that led the protest over the last year against the judicial overall, brothers in arms, the reservists against the judicial overall, became the biggest voluntary organization operating now, offering help, assistance, equipment, transportation, evacuation services, mental health services, anything that people from the South need. I can tell you that a young woman from my moshav, from my community, is operating a headquarter with a thousand volunteers doing, you know what? Preparing flowers for funerals. I can tell you about Hasidic Orthodox who came to a military base the other day offering their services to identify bodies. I can tell you that I was in the South the other day and I saw archaeologists, Israeli archaeologists volunteering to try and sort the ashes to find human remains. So I can tell you of a society that is becoming, how did President Bush say, say, said, a kinder, gentler nation, you can see that. And out of that and the resilience of Israelis, something better must come out of it. We will heal as a nation. I know that. And I pray to the God that I don't believe in, that these beautiful communities in the South will be rebuilt. It will happen only if Israel can, can secure their lives. So it goes together with the outcomes of this war that we are headed to. Israel will rise. Israelis rise always. But you, you know, you need to, to tangle what will happen with our enemies from Hamas to Iran, from Lebanon to the West Bank. I don't think that anybody knows. Not, not now. Not at this point in time. Yeah. I, I mean, and I'm not expecting 
that you can map out anything from this point, but it, it does raise the question because the scenes that you see in Gaza and the grief that you see there is also going to harden positions. And so you just wonder whether this is a, going to be, a, a, been 56 years, this is going to be a perpetual state of hostility. Then does that make you more secure? No, no, but, but there's something that needs to be said there. There's nobody I respect who is happy to see these images from Gaza, images of destroyed neighborhoods, of dead kids, of refugees. But bear in mind, David, that when you try to understand how come Hamas has took over Gaza, so yes, President Biden was right. Not all Palestinians are Hamas, but Hamas wouldn't be there as strong and as well established in Gaza, were it not for the support of the Palestinian population that shelters them, harbors them, votes for them, supports them. You know, there was a, a tape released yesterday in Israel of a terrorist who was part of this horrific attack on October 7th, taking a cell phone of an Israeli young woman, calling his parents in Gaza and telling them, listen, I killed yeah, I that, 10 yeah. Israelis and his father celebrated and his mother congratulates him and they tell him, we are proud of you. We would be glad to be there with you. And he tells them, her blood is on my hands. I took her phone. So when I think about a young musician from Gaza that I know personally, she's a pianist. Her parents are there. She's worried as hell. I have no good answers for her, but I have answers for myself. I know there are innocent people in Gaza that the, the difference is that Israel is not aiming at them. Israel is trying to solve a problem which is perhaps unsolvable. But David, think of another country. Do you know of any other country, particularly a Western country, who is living on the verge of a volcano, who has let such a monstrous entity thrive and rise on the other side of the border? Israel has to manage it. And now, 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 can it be done with no collateral damage? Unfortunately, not. Can it be done at any cost? Of course not. I don't think that Israel wants or can do it at any cost. That's why, you know, the United States, as I told you, is with both hands on the wheel. So I guess the rope is not very long and the window of opportunity is not very big. You mentioned Biden and you talk about how the Americans have their hands on the wheel Talk to me about the role that the U.S. is playing and Israeli reaction to it. This is one more thing uh, that uh, Netanyahu will have to be accountable for after the war. The fact that the situation in which we are these days led to the fact that the Americans are providing Israel with unprecedented economic and military assistance and presence, you know, with two aircraft carriers. And, uh, and other military equipment and military presence of both men and hardware in Israel and around Israel, uh, but it comes with a price. It comes with a price of American involvement. And you have a gloss over that, which has to do with the sentiment. The president, both in his speech immediately after the massacre, and in his speech here in Israel, 
spoke like the biggest Zionist, like the most Israel-loving president Israelis have ever known. And so I think the Israelis are grateful, but Israelis are also aware of the fact that the Americans have a stake and a say in what is going to happen here. So when Netanyahu says no humanitarian aid will be provided to the Palestinians in Gaza, then he has to reckon with the fact that humanitarian aid will be provided to the Palestinians in Gaza because the Americans said so. And when he says that we will smash Hamas and we will go in and we will go all, you know, all the way, he has to delay because the Americans insist on exhausting all options for negotiations over a deal to rescue the hostages. So the Americans are here and they are here to stay. And it's for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of America as well. Let me return just to the point we were talking about before, Ilana, because, you know, I uh, I have such deep, deep, deep respect for you. I really think you're one of the great journalists, not just in Israel, but the world, and partly wow. because Thanks. you've been willing to uh, challenge shibboleths and speak truth to power and go and find out where the truth is, uh, no matter how painful the truth is. And I'm hearing loud and clear what I'm I would feel myself and do in in many ways, your sense of horror and grief and outrage about what happened. But on the question of Hamas and why Hamas might have support and so on, do you not think that 56 years of occupation have something to do with it, that you have two and a half million people crammed into Gaza and conditions there are bleak in terms of uh, health, economy, Living conditions are, are 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 poor, and so does that not create a circumstance in which groups like Hamas can flourish? Aren't there alternative answers to that that would make it harder for terrorist groups to rise and flourish and take root? In terms of the facts, David, occupation in Gaza ended in two thousand and five with the disengagement. But even if I acknowledge part of what you say in terms of conditions of living and in terms of the fact that Gaza was never a paradise, in front of the horror of October 7th, it all pales. I mean, the conditions in Gaza and even even Israeli policies can maybe explain many things. They cannot explain, not only justify, let alone justify, they cannot even explain nothing of that. And I, I'm saying it because because you flattered me in a sense, to to make me confront some kind of truth. I understand. And you said, you're trying to say, listen, if you're a journalist seeking the truth, go ahead, go after the truth. Where have you been, Israelis? What have you done? How come Gaza became what it became? David, Gaza became what it became first and foremost because a group of Islamic jihadists, terrorists, blood, thirsty militants took over Gaza. They threw gays from the roofs. They shot at the knees of opponents, of Palestinian opponents. And they did what they did October 7th. This is Hamas. So so I, I got to make the separation. If I want to seek the truth, I got to make the separation and say, what happened to my people? Listen, you, you should you should listen to, to, to the, these people from the kibbutzim. You know, one of I'm sure you heard the lady who was released the yeah, day sure. before yesterday. Yes. 
85-year-old woman. Her husband is 82 or 83 years old. He used to drive Palestinian people, sick people, from the border point to Israeli hospitals, volunteering to drive them to Israeli hospitals so that they can get the care they need. This is not a story of a naive kibbutznik. This is part of the story of Israel, of so many people within Israeli society who see the end of the conflict in some kind of coexistence. coexistence. In a way, some of them got a slap in the face on October 7th. Now, if you're trying to ask me, and, and that's a fair question, that's a fair question. Is everything you thought before October, October 7th false now? Is it all gone? Did it all evaporate? No. I know one thing, Palestinians living in the West Bank are going nowhere. And neither are we. So some solution one day with a God that I not believe in, help, with God's help, something will have to, will have to happen. Military solutions are not good for everything, particularly not for this kind of conflict, which is both political and territorial and in a way religious one. So some kind of compromise will have to be stricken. But you know what the problem is, David? Many Israelis who wanted compromise don't believe it can happen anymore. That's the real problem. They were slapped in the face after the second intifada, the suicide bombers, after the fiasco in Camp David, after the disengagement, and now after October 7th. So even those of us who want to believe that the compromise is possible, that you can somehow divide this piece of land between the sea and the river, that you can find some kind of binational, international, extraterritorial solution for Jerusalem, that the refugees problem can be somehow solved, not within the state of Israel, the water problem, the settlements, everything perhaps can be solved. But can the sentiment be reversed? Can they come to terms with the fact that we are here to stay? Can they come to terms with the fact that we have no other place on the face of the earth? Can they come to, term with the, to terms with the fact that many Israelis would love to reach their hand if only there was a hand on the other side? October 7th was destructive for any kind of naivety that was still here. Well, if the end result of the horrors of October 7th are that they snuff out any last belief on both sides that something better is achievable, then Hamas will have achieved everything they hoped for. And that would be the ultimate tragedy if it leads to more and more and more of this. So I'm hoping that the prayer you give to the God you don't believe in is heard and returned because um, I don't want to have, for the rest of my life and for my children's life and their children's life, conversations like this. It's so extraordinarily painful. But I so appreciate you spending time with me today. I, I hear I've known you for a while, and I know I know how strong you are. And uh, I hear the grief, and I hear the pain, and I hear the outrage, and I understand it. And I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about all my friends there, and I'm thinking about some of my friends 
Palestinian friends as well who are who are also people who had that what I hope is not too naive notion that maybe we can figure this out. Uh, I grieve for you all. So we will talk. We will continue to talk. And meanwhile, I, I really hope you get the hostages back. I hope that that can be achieved with a, the minimum of pain and loss, additional loss, but um, hard times. Our hearts are broken. And I know I don't sound like a reporter now. I sound like a person who loves her country very much and the people of Israel, not only the country. First and foremost, the people. And more than anybody, I care now for those who lost their lives and those that, those that you can, we can still save in Gaza. I think of the mother with the two redhead small kids. I think of her and I think of the 200 hostages. So our hearts are broken, but, but we are not, David. We are not. And uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your care and your thoughts and your prayers. And we do hope for better days to come. Ilana Diane, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Lena Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.